Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Guests, my name is Dustin Smetona. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace Church. And if you are new to the Bible, this is a safe place to learn and grow. If you don't have a Bible or don't have an ESV, which is the version that we use, uh, you can grab a copy from the lobby if you'd like, or you can just pull out your mobile device and punch in Galatians 2 ESV and follow along that way. Well, this Sunday, we've called an audible. We had intended to be into Galatians chapter 3 this morning, but as those of you who were here last week may remember, Pastor Eric only made it through the first point of his two-point sermon. And we decided that since this passage is, you know, after all, the beating heart at the center of Galatians, we should spend another week in it and finish his sermon. So I'm the one preaching, but I'm finishing Pastor Eric's sermon, and that means two different preachers preaching one two-week-long sermon. That's what's about to happen. Uh, last week, verses 15 and 16, Eric wonderfully uh, impressed upon us that we are justified by faith alone, a cornerstone belief of Christianity, a cornerstone of the Bible. And we defined faith using a phrase uh, from our, our, our beloved friend John Piper, faith as a peculiarly a receiving grace. That's what faith is, not a work. It is peculiarly a receiving grace. We receive the gift of the righteousness of Jesus as the sole grounds on which God accepts us. That's it. We don't mix in our own works at all. We contribute nothing to our salvation. Jesus did everything required of us. That's what we celebrated from this text last week. God gives us eyes to see, hearts to receive that wonderful reality as true and good. That's faith. That's what makes a Christian, receiving that. But this idea, being justified by faith alone, does not sit well with many. In fact, Paul's critics here in Galatia were saying that preaching justification by faith alone was dangerous. Dangerous. You'll make immoral people. I mean, if God justifies bad people and there are no requirements laid upon them, why would they bother being good? People need to feel the pressure to live upright lives, to keep them in, in line. Now, to be clear, there's no argument here that, that you're not justified by faith in Christ. They would not have disagreed with Paul that you're justified by faith in Christ. They, they were simply arguing that law-keeping was part of the equation. It's faith in Christ plus keeping the law that makes you right with God. That was their argument. But Paul isn't having any of it. He won't tolerate it, and neither should we. However, if we really believe that we're justified by faith alone— we do need to take this objection seriously. Paul is taking their objection seriously. He's answering it actually in verses 17 to 21. If our justification doesn't depend on our works, why should we expect Christians to live righteous lives? Why? Why would we bother? If he's done it all, why should we even try? Paul's answer is, you're thinking about it all wrong. 
we now live by faith. We live by faith. What does that mean? We'll find out as we move through the passage. Let's turn our attention there now, even with some crying in the background. By the power of the Spirit, we are going to benefit from this passage. We love those kids. Let me read our passage and then pray. Start in chapter 2, verse 15, go through verse 21. Here we go. Galatians 2, 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Why? Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The very words of God. Would you join me in a brief prayer for understanding? Lord, we ask you now to awaken faith in our hearts. For we, above all things, need to see again the glorious grace of your Son and trust in him and who he is for us. We need that today as much as we've needed it any other day. And so help us to see your son and his work for us and to trust in it afresh once again that our burdens this morning may be lifted, that our guilt may be erased, that our confidence in a bright future for undeserving people like us is secure. Help us to believe by the power of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. The final verse of Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, I read it many times this week as I prepared. That verse sends a chill down my spine. I don't know about you. It sends a chill down my spine, not, not because I think that it is at all possible to nullify God's grace, to make it of no effect, or that it's even possible to rob Jesus Christ of the prize for which he died. That's not possible. But it sends a chill down my spine because 
it is possible for my life to communicate that Christ's sacrifice on the cross wasn't enough. That there's something to my salvation besides him. That he didn't do enough. I could end up saying that with my life. May it never be so. Verse 21 to me is the most devastating part of Paul's argument, and it is the spot to which he is moving his audience for sure. And it reveals the reason why he takes this particular issue about our works and Jesus' works so seriously. You could think that this is just him splitting hairs. I mean, what what is the relationship between my work and Christ's work and my salvation? Why does that matter so much? I mean, obviously I should trust in Christ, right? And obviously I should try to lead a good life. Why do you have to work so hard to define that? Well, Paul's answer to that question, if we were to ask him, is this. If you aren't careful and precise and thoroughly biblical as you define for yourself the relationship between your works and your salvation, if you're not careful, you will deeply struggle to live in the good of the gospel. And in fact, will rob yourself of the power to be a Christian. And you will rob yourself of the delight of being a Christian. That's what's at stake in how we think about this. If we're not careful on this, we could fail to give the glorious Christ the glory that he deserves for rescuing us from our own inability to satisfy God's requirements. And ultimately, if we continue down that path, giving ourselves credit for something only Jesus deserves the credit for, we may prove in the end to have no saving faith at all and find ourselves not justified, not acceptable to God because we refuse to receive his great gift of salvation through Christ alone. Those are the stakes. That's why Paul takes this so seriously, and we must as well. This is the heart of the gospel itself. To get this right is life. To get it wrong, death. Now, Paul has well established that we are justified by faith. He makes that as clear as he can in verses 15 to 16. By works of the law, he says, no one has ever been justified. Ever. Old Testament saints weren't justified by their keeping of the law. God took them as his people and made promises to them and saved them from slavery in Egypt before he ever gave them the law. As we'll see next week, I don't want to skip ahead too far, but Abraham was justified by faith before there was any law. Every true believer at all times has been justified by faith. That's been established. And Paul's critics don't argue that at all. They don't dispute that. They're arguing that we need to have faith in Christ and then live by the law in order to be justified. Sure, you're made right with God by faith. No problem with that. But now get to work. Get to work, you. Your life now, today, is a partnership. God has a part and you have a part. That is wrong. And that was not just a first century error. That pernicious doctrine is still around. 
not only by teachers and preachers way out there in evangelicalism or on Twitter or Instagram or something like that, that kind of thinking weasels its way into our own hearts as well. We drift into thinking that in some way our life with God now is dependent upon us. And it's not. Paul says we live by faith. Justified by faith for what Christ has done in the past, live by faith in Jesus now. How does this work? How does this play out? Let me trace Paul's argument here in two parts, two points. I suppose actually these are subpoints because I'm preaching the second point of Eric's sermon from last week. Two subpoints to my sermon. What does it mean to live by faith? Point number one, my most heavy metal point, you die. How do you live by faith? You die. Verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. We all want to be justified. We want God to approve of us. We want to know that we have escaped his judgment. That's what Paul has in mind when he says, we endeavor to be justified. Who wouldn't want that? And what he means is that if sinners, whether Jew or Gentile, and in fact, he's equalizing Jews and Gentiles here by now referring to Jews as sinners. If sinners are really justified before God, and then they still sin, i.e. don't keep the law, doesn't that mean Christ is enabling them to sin? Or saving them into sin? Paul, of course, emphatically says, certainly not. And what he's doing here is setting up the futility of going back under the law. For Christ fulfilled the law for us. We're no longer underneath it. It has been dismantled. We have a different relationship with the law. That's what he's arguing. And if we try to keep it, to go back underneath it, we'll only prove that we can't. <laughs> right? If you live under the law, you will only prove that you can't keep it. That's our situation. So... Paul lays out for us, verse 18, a new kind of sin, the sin of going back to the law. Verse 18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. The sin of rebuilding the law. Remember, he's already explained that we've abandoned the law as our source of justification, right? It can't. Nobody's ever been justified by the law. If we now try to get justified by the law, we prove to be breakers of the law. See the futility. And so he defines sin as setting up a law. Setting up the law, even. His, his detractors define sin as lawlessness, not obeying the law. Paul says, actually, you can be just as bad of a sinner by trying to say that your keeping of the law is in some way important. He defines sin as putting the law in the place of Christ, saying that the law can do something only Jesus can do. That is a very serious sin on this side of the cross. Now, it's a criticism, but as a sidebar here, 
I wouldn't want you to miss a little bit of Paul's tenderness, okay? Notice how he switches to a first person in eight, verse 18. For if I rebuild, he's not talking about himself. He's, it's an impersonal I. But if I, even though he could have said, if you, he's got his fingers pointed at them. But even there, a little bit of tenderness baked into his critique. So don't rebuild the law. Do this instead, he says. Verse 19, he explains a new way of relating to the law. Verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law. Through attempting to keep the law, I realized that I couldn't and I needed to die to that whole system. I died to the law so that I might live to God by faith. What he means is he's been released from the power and authority of the law. That's what a death signified, and that death must happen. You must be released from the power and authority of the law if you are to live by faith. Now, Paul's audience was strongly tempted to put themselves back underneath the Old Testament law, capital L, law. I doubt there are many here this morning struggling with that particular temptation. You weren't hoping to go home and make some animal sacrifices today, were you? Or like Paul's opponents, go home and have a circumcision party. Not very tempting, I don't think. Don't know what that is? Don't want to know. Don't want to talk about it after the service. Don't bring it up. Not tempted by that. Not tempted to go back under the law, the Torah. But we are tempted to rebuild our own law and submit to it as though it were God's law or take somebody else's laws of living and treat them as though they are God's law. Quiet times, church attendance, not cussing, not watching secular movies, not voting for one political party or the other. Take your pick. I can make a list a mile long. It's not that doing or not doing any of those things is necessarily wrong or right. It's the problem here. Thinking that doing or not doing any of those things somehow makes us acceptable to God on any given day. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone, received by faith, that makes us acceptable to God yesterday, today, tomorrow, every day into eternity. On account of nothing that we do. But we're all tempted by legalism. We have a legalistic bent in our hearts by default. We think that our life with God now must in some way be dependent upon us and my friends, that is just a sinister manifestation of pride. Some way to have some control over the relationship. We don't really want to submit to him in his grace. And Paul says we must die to that mentality if we are to enjoy life with God by faith. Step number one to living by faith, I must die to seeing my behavior as the grounds of my relationship with God. I must die to that. Get out from under it. Reject it out of hand. 
look, I can't have long enough quiet times to please God, okay? Not only because of my own inability to focus or stay disciplined, which is a huge problem, but because God's standards for behavior are much higher than the ones that I would set. I guarantee that if if we all looked at each other's list detailing what we think we should do to be acceptable to God, our list wouldn't even go far enough. We would aim way too low. A standard which, if, if we hit, we might feel very pleased with ourselves. But it wouldn't impress God. It wouldn't appease Him. And whatever standard we set up, if we don't hit it, we'll be depressed. And actually, if, if I were showing my hand, I think that may be where many of us are. I don't think we're a room full of arrogant rule keepers. But I do think we might be a room full of people who feel pretty depressed about their performance as a Christian. And this text is fine-tuned to encourage you. God isn't against you because your quiet times aren't that great. God isn't against you because you slipped up in your Bible reading. God isn't against you because your prayers are unfocused and you're distracted. We've set up a standard we aren't reaching. We believe that God is against us, but the problem with that sentence is all the us in it. It's big on us and small on God and his grace. What's on your list? What's on your list? What do you think would please God and finally give your heart rest if you could just do it? You got something. Die to it. Get rid of it. It won't make you happy. It's not enough. You can't even do it anyway. And that's why you got to abandon this program altogether. It is not God's will for us to in any way depend upon our works for our relationship with Him. And it won't work. And the true gospel, my goodness, is so much better. Take Charles Spurgeon's advice. Spurgeon said, You must sell off your righteousness. It won't fetch much. (laughs) No man, he said, no man or woman or child can be saved by the righteousness of Christ while he puts any trust in his own. Die to the law. Whether God's law or your law, die to it. That is the first part of what it means to live by faith. Part number two. What does it mean to live by faith? It means Christ lives in you. This is the answer. Christ lives in you. Now, just when we thought we were done dying, there is another death for us to experience. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. Our life with Christ on this side of the cross is defined by our identification with his death. That what happened to him on the cross counts for us. 
We do this by faith. We trust in his death alone as the complete payment for our sins. One scholar commented on this verse, and he said, Believers are regarded as having hung on the cross with Christ. Or as Paul said in another place, your sins have been nailed to the cross. And we need to live and believe that every day. We didn't just believe that once to get saved and then move on from it and now we've got other stuff we've got to work on. No, no, no. No, I have been crucified with Christ and that is true every day and I must return to that every day. We don't move on from the need to see ourselves as crucified with Christ. We don't move on from the need to remember and cherish that God regards us the same way he regards Jesus Christ. That's how you defeat a legalistic heart. We need faith in this reality day by day and moment by moment. It shapes daily life. You and I have a fundamentally different relationship to God. We have a fundamentally different relationship to the law. We have a fundamentally different relationship to ourselves. I'm going to, I hope, open it up to you. A Christ-centered relationship with everything. That's what you have now. A Christ-centered relationship with everything. A new life entirely. Second part of verse 20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In a sense, I'm gone. I'm gone. That's the end of me. The cross was the end of me. And all that's left is Jesus Christ himself. He is living his life, his resurrected life. He is living that life through me and in me right now. I'm a new creation, as Paul would say elsewhere. This gets to the heart of Paul's explanation about why Christians who believe in justification, uh, justification by faith alone aren't lawless and immoral. Because there's something different. They are a completely different entity now. That's his answer. Why aren't Christians going to be immoral if you let them know they're justified by faith alone? Because what I'm saying is they're justified by faith alone and they become something completely new. Reformer Martin Luther used the analogy of a, of a tree. Here's what he wrote. Can't say it better than Luther, of course. Here he is. Good and righteous works never make a good and righteous person. A good and righteous person, however, does good and righteous works. Evil works never make an evil person, but an evil person does evil works. Therefore, Good works flow from a righteous person. As Christ says, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Matthew 7, 18, he continues, Obviously, the fruit does not bear the tree. Neither does the tree grow on the fruit. The opposite is the case. The tree bears the fruit, and the fruit grows on the tree. Just as the tree precedes the fruit, the fruit does not make the tree good or bad. The trees make the fruit. Similarly, 
one must be righteous or evil beforehand, before doing good or evil works. One's work does not make one good or evil. One does good or evil works. Works don't make a person. But whatever kind of person we are determines the kind of work we will do. And because, by faith, receiving the gift of Jesus Christ's righteousness and his forgiveness, because we've received that and been robed in his righteousness and born again, we are new creatures through which he is pressing his life into and through us all by virtue. He does this not by our effort, but by our union with him through faith. Notice the phrase. It's in there a number of times. In Christ. A big, small phrase in Paul's thinking. Union with Christ by faith. Through that union, you are united with him. And that makes you something different. That's why we can abandon the authority and power of laws and lists. Because we are united to the Son of God by faith. And we live in that. We didn't just do it once and gave up on it. We live in it now. We have something much better than a list, my friends. Much better than a law. Much better than our own effort and a pile of self-help books. We have Jesus himself living with us, in us, animating us. Why should we expect Christians justified by faith alone to live lives that please God? Well, first and foremost, because they're forgiven for all of their sins. And secondly, because God regards us as Christ. And thirdly, because Christ is living his life in us. End of verse 20. The life I now live, now, right now. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. He gave himself for me. Notice how when Paul thinks of himself, starts thinking about himself and the kind of life he should be living, he thinks of Jesus. He thinks of Jesus who loved him and laid down his life for him. He cannot think about his works for very long. He looks at himself and his reflection upon himself moves his gaze upward to heaven where Jesus is can't stay focused on himself, can't help as he thinks about himself of then immediately thinking of all that Jesus has done for him and is doing for him. Thinks about his works and then just goes right to the gospel. My works can't do nothing. Jesus, though, on the cross loving me and laying down his life for me, that's everything for me. My works are nothing to me. It's a great example of, oh, it's a famous quote. We shared it before. Robert Murray McShane, Scottish preacher, he said, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. You could say, every time you look at yourself, just immediately flee to Jesus Christ. That's what we should do. Prime example of that. Look at your life. Look at your track record of faithfulness 
and then look to Jesus. <laughs> That's what it means to live by faith. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means to believe and receive that Jesus did everything we needed to do to make us right with God. And that right now, right now, this very moment, he is providing everything that we need for life with God. An ongoing trust and reliance upon the Lord Jesus Christ. A daily acknowledgement and delight that Christ is your life. Receiving the treasure of Jesus Christ every day. Not working for it. Not doing it. Not trying harder. Just receiving him with open and empty hands every day. The same thing you did on the day you were converted. Do it again and again and again. That is living by faith alone. For Jesus is the giver that doesn't stop giving. And if we receive the gift of Jesus Christ himself, we're not even talking about the things he does for us. We're talking about him. Receiving him and everything that he is. We don't need the law. He himself produces growth in us. We rely on him. The danger for us, to say it over and over again, the danger for us is substituting this kind of daily dependence, daily faith, for something else. It is so unnatural to believe what I'm telling you this morning. There has got to be something I'm responsible for, right? Apart from him. Even if it's 99.9% .9 Jesus, there's 0.1% that I'm responsible for, right? Right? Come on. Wrong. Wrong. That's our pride talking. That's our desire for control talking. Our self-reliance talking. That's our enemy talking. It is all him. Your life is bound up in his life. Everything you need, he provides. Nobody grows as a Christian by trying harder. We grow as Christians by trusting and treasuring him more. The Christian life is gospel living. It's gospel living, living in light of the good news of Jesus Christ from day one to eternity. Many have spoken of the skill of preaching the gospel to ourselves. That's something you do. We preach the gospel to you every Sunday because we want you to be able to preach it to yourself when we're not around, not together. Must preach the gospel to ourselves every day that Jesus is everything and has done everything for us. Milton Vincent, pastor and author, wrote a great little book no books like it that I'm aware of, called The Gospel Primer. We've quoted him before, but here's what he writes in the introduction to his little book about, it's a book about living in the good of the gospel and preaching the gospel to yourself. He says, all Christians should become expert in their knowledge and use of the gospel. I like that he doesn't just say knowledge. This is wise. In their knowledge of, got to know what it is, and their use of it. Not simply so that they can share it faithfully with non-Christians, 
but also so they can speak it to themselves every day and experience its benefits. Are you daily fighting to have a quiet time? Or are you daily experiencing the benefits of the gospel? Look, Christ has done more for us than we know. He's done it gladly. He's doing it gladly. He's doing more for us now than we even know. And we live in the good of His grace every day. And you and I will grow and change and bear more fruit as we become more and more aware of the good that He is doing for us and in us. You will grow as you trust and treasure Him more. Remember His own words. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But as the vine is connected to the branch, right? A beautiful picture of faith. As the vine is connected to the branch, the branch presses its life and health into the vine. You trust in him. You return to him. You let your heart delight in him. And you get all the benefits of who he is transferred to you. My friends, we have never sought, I don't think, and we will never seek to put any confidence in ourselves. We don't trust ourselves. <laughs> we don't defend ourselves. That's a nasty business. If someone asks us, why are you so happy? Or why do you go to church? Or why are you so sure you're going to heaven? What a mistake it would be to start talking about ourselves. If somebody asks us those questions, we begin to talk about Jesus. Why are you this way? Because Jesus. Why do you do this? Because Jesus. We need a because Jesus instinct, okay? A knee-jerk because Jesus. He has done it all. He's done the work we should have done. He has paid the price that we owe on account of our sins on the cross. And now, right now, he is supplying every need spiritually, physically, relationally, relationally, so that we can live another day. Our lives are bound up in his life all by faith. All by faith. A peculiarly receiving grace. We are receiving from him constantly, day one to eternity. We enjoy this simply because God gave it to us as a gift of his grace. And even we receive it because God graciously opened our eyes to receive it. We have done no work here to help ourselves. And if you're here this morning, and you know, I have not received this great treasure. I am trusting in myself. It is up to me to figure this whole thing out. If you're here and you have not received this great treasure, Jesus Christ, I want to make it crystal clear. He is offering him to you today. He's offering him to the world right now. That's why Jesus hasn't come back, because he is being offered. 
to be taken by faith and trusted. And if you have not received him, please, please abandon your attempts to find God. He's already been seeking you. Abandon your attempts to justify yourself before him. He knows who you really are. And he's ready to forgive you and receive you anyway. So, receive Jesus Christ as the sole grounds of your acceptance with God. And please don't wait. Please don't wait. You don't know how much time you have. Neither do we. I plead with you to receive Christ and experience all these great benefits. Peace with God. Forgiveness. Sovereign Grace Church, put no trust in yourselves. No trust in your efforts to be a good Christian. We're worse than we think. Worse than we think, but God is more gracious than we have yet come to understand. So live daily in the good of his gospel. As we say at the end of every service, live in the good of his gospel for the life that we now live in the flesh. We live not by our works or effort, but by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Lord, even receiving this great gift to have faith, we rely completely on the power of the Spirit to do. And so I do ask, in particular for those here this morning who, who would say, I have not received this, I have not trusted in Christ, but I do want peace with God. I want to know that I won't be judged on account of my sins. I pray that you would give that person today faith to believe and trust and receive gladly the truth that there's nothing they need to do, that Jesus has done it all. And Lord, for those of us who do know your Son and have trusted him and are following him and want to please him, Lord, protect us. Oh, protect us from going back underneath some kind of law. Help us to live with daily trust and delight in your Son, who we confess once again has done it all. It was finished. And who is now doing everything we need to sustain our life with you. May we trust in him by your power that we may experience his joy each day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.